When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Hi, Leslie. Hey, great to meet you guys. Great to meet you too. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us. No problem. I think you are literally the first time I've ever used my desk phone. It's confirmation that it actually works. <laughs> it has a purpose. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, that is why, that's why I have one. I, I now know. I know. I keep trying to throw out my handset and I'm like, ah, oh, but there's just those occasions when you actually need one. <laughs> totally, totally. And this turned out to be it. So this is good. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. Today, we're talking to Leslie Witt. Leslie Witt is a design thinker extraordinaire, and she's got a very interesting story. Currently, she's the head of design for small business at the business and financial software behemoth Intuit. But before that, she spent 10 years at IDEO, an award-winning global design and innovation consultancy, where she did all kinds of super cool things. She spent her youth being that annoyingly exceptional person in terms of academics and band and being a salutatorian and, you know, being good at everything. She went on to study architecture at Rice and then got her master's of architecture from Princeton. So yeah, she's a total smarty pants. But that's a good thing because Jamie and I both got measurably smarter from talking to her. Plus, she's lived through some humanizing life challenges that make her both adept at making lemonade and fascinating to listen to. See for yourself. Let's talk to Leslie.
My name is Leslie Witt. I live in Mountain View, California. I am the head of design for Intuit Small Business Group. And the reason that I do that is long and complicated, but at the heart of it sits the fact that Intuit is a company who is deeply purpose-oriented in improving the financial lives of the customers that they serve, and in this case, small businesses. And they deeply believe in the power of design to actually achieve that goal. So that's why I'm here. Are you originally from Northern California or did you grow up somewhere totally different? No, I I always joke with my husband, who is from Northern California, that I grew up in all of the flyover states. Um, (laughs) We moved nine times while I was growing up. He still can't name them, by the way. But I was born in Indiana, moved to Michigan, Ohio, Minnesota, Missouri, spent a few stints in Texas, and then uh, ended up going to high school in St. Louis. And, And why did you move around? Is that because you were a military family or job changes for parents? Yeah, my dad was a company man. He uh, was Cheerio salesman, uh, worked as a sales manager for General Mills, the food company. Um, mm-hmm. And at that time, the way they worked things was if, if, you, if you'd had a good year, they moved you to the next city. So he did pretty well, and we got very used to being the new kids on the block. Interesting. So tell us about your childhood moving around. What was your family dynamic like? Did you have siblings? Were your parents you know, married the entire time? I had a very idyllic childhood. So it, it, the moves were the most traumatic part of it, and that even not all that traumatic, um, as I had very resilient parents who are still the most popular people that I've ever met. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, kind of uh, dabbling in, in being an artist for the entire time I grew up, you know, trying on muraling for size. She's now a devoted watercolorist and always the president of everything, president of the PTA, president of the band. She just makes herself at home and integrated instantaneously, which made it really easy for my brother and I. I have one sibling, uh, my brother Kevin, who's three years older, and we went to the same college. We're very, very close. Um, He's a CTO at a small financial advisory firm in Austin, Texas. That does sound like a, a really profound lesson in resilience. If you're moving from city to city like that and your parents are modeling this really strong adaptability, that must have been a lesson that other kids didn't get. Yeah, my brother and I actually talk about it a lot because we've both made life choices where we, it looks like we're not moving at all. <laughs> I think my parents took that as a little bit, little bit of an insult, um, which is not at all what it's meant to be. But we look back and we're like, you know, it was extremely enabling as an adult to know a few things. One, know that you could kind of come in and get known quickly. And I actually think, you know, more important than anything, and one of the things I want to make sure I find some way for my spoiled Northern California children to discover that there are cool people and awesome things about any community. And, you know, we would go and find our tribe no matter where we went. And to know that you can do that, you know, anywhere in this country and anywhere in the world is, is really empowering. Yeah, incredibly empowering because that gives you license. That gives you liberation to go anywhere and feel like you can find some commonality and some sense of home or familiarity there. And you can resonate with people of all different backgrounds, which is the key to not growing up ethnocentric and racist. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I, I have one moment where that stood out in my childhood that was sort of like my, my moment of feeling the opposite, which is when we moved from Houston, Texas to St. Louis when I was 13, which is not the ideal time to move um, in terms of uh, personal self-confidence. But yeah. I was a five foot nine, 13 year old with 
big old Texas hair and uh, <laughs> went to school the first day thinking I looked pretty awesome. Pink frost lipstick, enormous hair, shoulder pads. I was in a Liz Claiborne short suit and I, you know, amble up to the cafeteria line and the cafeteria staff lady said to me, honey, the teacher line is over there. I'm like, oh. oh my God. Oh my God. If I didn't already feel awkward enough, every kid out there thinks the teacher's going to sit down with them. Um, but, uh, oh I, I quickly chameleoned and found my place there as well. I, the, the hair got um, instantly flatter. Um, oh man, Liz Claiborne, that's a blast from the past. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was classy. It was very so classy. It sounds like you're pretty creative with your look on the outside. Were you creative on the inside, did you express yourself in any particular way? Drawings, paintings, how was your imagination? I did, although that wasn't my real focus. So I think I mentioned that my mom um, really has been an artist my entire life. And so I was always heavily exposed to the visual arts and I'm pretty good at them from a just natural talent perspective. But I, as I'm sure many of you did, had to make an extracurricular path choice in junior high and I chose music. I was a devoted trumpet player, all state trumpet, played all the way through college and um, really kind of focused on that area um, and reemerged into the visual arts based on my passion for math and figuring out that, you know, at least from a guidance counselor perspective, someone good in math who can do art should be an architect. Oh, yeah, that's... That's where they funnel you. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> like yeah. there's some diagram that goes A plus B equals architect. <laughs> so wait, okay, so you already painted a very vivid picture of the frosted pink lipstick and the Liz Claiborne short suit. <laughs> and now I find out that you're a trumpet player and this is and all... a mathlete. Yeah, and I'm okay. So first of all, <laughs> cheers to you. I, can tell. I, I am. I totally am. Because I have this I have this really, I have this thing for nerds who are also cool. Like they're just not mm -hmm. afraid to be nerds. Um, right. So I want to know about your teenage years. You, you've already helped us understand how you could be a chameleon, but at some point you have to find your own identity and stick with it. Like, did you have to rebel in order to find that? Or was trumpet and math your outlets for identity. <laughs> I've always been pretty outspoken. So I think that that sense of uh, sense of self was was deep and ingrained. I think my self-perception was that I was a bit of a rebel. But in looking back and, you know, and seeing the drum major, national merit scholar, mathlete, I've, I've evolved that perspective to say, I think, you know, I think I was vanilla with like a salted caramel twist. <laughs> I was uh, I was thinking recently with a girlfriend who lives out here and used to do this with me. She and I would skip school, mostly with parental permission. My parents were like, sure, just tell me when you're going to leave. But we would skip school to go to a bookstore, this amazing bookstore that's closed down in St. Louis now called Library Limited. And we'd always come back in time for band. So I'm like, you know, I, I had like a sort of rebellion within very tight bounds. <laughs> It still sounds like you had to a little bit break the, the confines of where society was kind of funneling you. I mean, you've got you got channeled into architecture, which doesn't sound like it was a bad fit. But at the same time, I don't know. I mean, being female and being playing the trumpet and being good at math, those are a little atypical. Yeah, I was going to say, I have always been attracted to things that I think society expects boys to do. 
Yeah. And then I've loved just trouncing my competition. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, uh, showing like, oh, really? Because <laughs> watch this lady kill it. Um, and so that was definitely, um, that was definitely a part of my attraction to architecture was to look at the boys club that it has historically been and see that there was immense potential for disruption, as, as we like to say in the tech industry. <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, let's talk about architecture. You studied at Rice and then Princeton. You know, I think architecture is still very much in your DNA just by the mm-hmm. research I've done. Tell us how the college years shaped you and trouncing the boys club. Yes. <laughs> I loved architecture school, um, which is why I stayed in it for almost a decade. But uh, it is, uh, for those who have not had the pleasure of direct experience, um, you know, it's it's exhausting, but it's also exhilarating in the sense that there's a sustained conversation happening amongst a tribe of people who are deeply passionate and deeply knowledgeable and have a wildly inflated sense of ego, which I think is hugely important in the world in terms of the impact that they can have and the change that they can induce, you know, at, at all mm-hmm. scales and in individuals' behavior and in their outcome and uh, the shape of urban fabric. And, you know, I went to architecture potentially based on slightly dubious guidance. It ended up having nothing to do with math, but I fell in love with the rigor of the conversation and the rich history and the critique method, as painful as it can be for some, I just loved the the panel of, you know, kind of getting up and presenting and receiving feedback and, you know, scurrying arguments between professors. I just, I found the whole thing just emboldening and exhilarating. I can relate. I felt the same thing at art school. And I was just like, why didn't they let me know this goes on? Like, why didn't I know this in high school? (laughs) This is amazing. You mean I can I can be challenged to grow in this direction and then I can spark an argument and we can have this really great discourse about what's in service of the idea and what is the idea in service of like this is amazing. My kids have now entered the uh, factory model of of school with being in kindergarten. And I'm like, oh, it it just still hasn't penetrated into the majority of schools as -hmm. as a model of engagement. I think kids would end up so much more engaged. I do, too. More on that later. (laughs) So after architecture school, I'm not sure what you did in between architecture and IDEO. Why don't you tell us about that path and about your years at IDEO? Well, I was going to say, as much as I loved architecture school, the, the, the probably like yin to that gang is how much I did not love practicing as an architect. Ah. And I, I practiced, and that's a little unfair. There are highlight reels, but, you know, for comparison's sake, you know, what I thought being an architect would be like based on the conversations and the projects that I engaged with in the academic sphere fell really flat within the professional environment coupled with a few things. And I, I, you know, I, I chose the type of architecture firms I worked for, for, which were largely professors, boutique practices. And we sometimes did beautiful homes for rich people, which was, you know, enjoyable in its own right, but not quite the scale of impact that I'd imagined. And mostly used all of that power of discourse to construct what I've come to think of as like an arsenal of defense. All the reasons why the client's ideas were uninteresting or the developer was set out to ruin the idea and it ended up feeling like, at least in the way that I was practicing, not the thing that I'd signed up for. 
So, you know, I was 10 years in, if you include the education and sort of had this crisis moment of realizing it, it really wasn't what I wanted to do moving forward. Wow. What do you do with that crisis moment? Because you've invested a lot in your education up to that point, and it must feel like way too daunting to, to pivot. Yeah, it did. <laughs> um, <laughs> you panic. Okay. You, glad, to hear, uh, you glad to hear there's some panic in there that makes it feel human. <laughs> did you say you get married? Is that what else you do? <laughs> I said, yeah, you get married. Um, you panic. <laughs> you let your husband convince you to move to the Bay Area, which my primary comment on was, uh, there are no good architecture firms in the Bay Area. <laughs> um, he's like, you don't even like being an architect. <laughs> good um, argument. <laughs> yes. You know, he, he has some sense. Um, and he introduced me to IDEO which I had been so laser focused on the world of architecture that IDEO, which by that time, this is 2005, was a very well-established design brand, had like barely passed my radar. And thankfully, serendipity and luck interceded. I did the like worst application ever of just like blindly sending in a portfolio, never following up, never seeing if they actually had a position open, but they did. And what I brought to the table was a good match. And so a couple weeks after applying, I was, uh, I was a new employee. What did you do there? I initially joined as an architect. So they had a, a practice at the time, a, a bit of a fledgling offering called smart space. Um, and the idea was really to take the core methods that at the time I didn't know, but I you know, became intimately aware and a, a passionate fan about of human centered design and take that expansive way of understanding customer need and empathizing with, you know, a potential user as inspiration to exploration, quickly exploring and then setting upon new solutions. And smart space was, you know, smart in terms of space integrated with service that could just be human service or it could be tools. And so I came in as a person with architectural expertise um, and really I'd say for the first year or so at IDEO focused exclusively on the types of projects that you would think would sit there, like concept retail for some pretty cool clients, hospitality, hotel, um, sorry, hospital experiences, hospitality meaning hotels, and then actually looking at patient experiences where you can imagine that the role of space and the integration of space with service and various tools is, you know, essential to helping patients and their caregivers. Absolutely. I feel like that is an area that is ripe for growth. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, we didn't solve it in one blow <laughs> yeah. by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it was a, it was a radical um, shift in scale from what I'd been doing as an architect, even in residential, you know, my, my focus had been, you know, in, in oscillating extremes, you know, at the sort of party sketch idea down to the executional detail. And this really hovered in between at the human engagement scale so, you know, gasp it like interiors, which I had really looked down on as a person trained in architecture, but understanding how it is that all of the hard things and soft things and human interactions are sort of set up as potential energy. Wow. So did that reignite your love for architecture or did it ignite your love for human centered design or how did that influence you and how you wanted to direct your career? I feel like it unleashed my love of architecture to live somewhere besides my profession, which is that, you know, it's still fundamentally a core part of who I am, 
I now make enough money that I can actually afford to invest a little in it, <laughs> which previously mm-hmm. that, you know, economically I was not thriving as an architect either. I think that was part of the reality collision coming out of school. Um, but in general with IDEO, I often describe that period of my life as being reoxygenated. My optimism had withered. And IDEO was like a bellows that just like blew it right back up again. That moment in time, this is really kind of 2005, design thinking had gained immense traction. The types of conversations that IDEO was invited in to participate were things that like designers had never been considered relevant to before. Things like, you know, this is probably a couple of years later, but help us uh, design the citizen engagement for the newly found regulatory arm of the CFPB. You know, like things that you're like, designers are going to do that? And I just found that it sparked my imagination. It reignited my optimism and my the sort of utopian side of me and the belief that the core way that a designer approaches problems is different, but different in a way that adds immense value. So we'll probably talk a little bit more about this later, but when your counselors funneled you to architecture because you're good at math and the arts, I've always believed that STEM education should be accompanied by the arts education because that's what allows for the creative application of all of this science, technology, engineering, and math. And so I love what you're talking about falling in love with architecture as a discipline outside of architecture, because I think that those integrations and that intersection is where exciting stuff happens. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It gets really easy to fall in love. You know, I I think the sort of the strategy consultant mindset, which is shifting too, so not to be too negative on them, is to look for rigor and precedent and always want to point towards evidence of what's been done before. And the designer doesn't accept those givens. And, you know, they can marry quite well into becoming, you know, a robust argument as to why you should invest in something or why it's worth someone's time or inspiration to build upon a a variation on a theme. But, you know, that that sense of personal freedom to create and the toolkit, and I think it's both a craft toolkit and a mental toolkit, mental agility toolkit to be able to do it are things you have to invest a ton of time to actually develop. So how long were you at IDEO? I was there a decade. I okay, stayed wow. I stayed a long time and loved it. IDEO is a place where you can chameleon. I've used that that term before and I definitely did. I, I shifted super easily from base to kind of service and systems design. A couple of years in, I was pushed against my will and I always am thankful that I was into a project that was in the financial service sector. I remember telling my boss at the time, this uh, partner at IDEO, Fred Dust, I am not interested in this at all. And he was like, huh, that doesn't matter. (laughs) So I was like, excuse me? I just told you I'm not passionate about this. Aren't you supposed to find me something else? And he was like, huh, yeah, I know you're going to do this project. Um, And I'm so thankful that, uh, you know, whether it was insider, it was just simply that I was the, you know, the available resource to go on to a a project. It was... uh, money design, which is what I've, I've come to call it, uh, for Japanese customers and, you know, got to do some super cool travel to Tokyo, but in so doing accomplished some extreme user research. And so far as Japanese economic behaviors and financial service systems are radically different in the U S and it was like the first time that I could see ours as constructs and just to realize that 
all of these tools and systems and services, which in, in my opinion are largely broken in terms of actually meeting the people who use them need, that those were designed artifacts. And, you know, that collided almost directly with the economic crisis of 2008 and ended up, you know, combining into an immense opportunity to rethink the space of financial services and tools, which is what I ended my time at IDEO focused on. I led IDEO's design for money practice for the last four years that I was there, which was a hell of a lot harder to explain to people what it is that I do than when I used to be able to say, I'm an architect. (laughs) I bet. I've got to know some of the key comparisons between our designed monetary artifacts and Japan's. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's a really interesting, uh, you know, at least it it was true nine years ago. The Japan system is both uh, highly technological in the sense that like you can make account to account transfers instantaneously. You can do almost anything through their ATMs and mobile phones, but largely cash-based. So people will withdraw literally tens of thousands of dollars from ATM machines and have a deep belief that cash commodity trading is the safest thing to do. Exactly opposite of the U.S. You know, you're like, oh, I'm not going to take cash. That's not safe. Like, I'll have it on a credit card, which is insured. Credit card customer behavior, although it happened immensely in in Japan and was starting to ramp up courtesy of, like, e-commerce, was largely regarded as, you know, the foray of, you know, bottom feeders. You'd only possibly use a credit card if you had no money. So it's just some of the kind of psychology of behavior, the tools to enable or not enable certain things to be true, beliefs around risk and security, in some ways, none of which are completely true. You know, we kind of accept certain givens. So just seeing like a very different belief set and, you know, enabling mechanisms was like, oh, wow. All right. You know, checks, for instance, have never even existed in Japan. So we kept asking uh, interviewees, through a translator, how is your paycheck deposited? And they're like, uh, paychecks don't exist. Like, what does that even mean? Um, it was hard for us to initially grapple with the fact that all of these things are mental models. Wow. Fascinating. Oh yeah. That's really interesting. It's geeky on one hand, obviously, (laughs) but, but then when you combine it with what's the core problem someone's actually trying to address, and how right now are the things they're able to do it through either meeting those needs or not. And often, you know, it's not. I think the stat is a third of people in the U.S. are either un or underbanked. Um, what, what else are they looking to to actually solve that? And how could you make it radically better? You know, when you, you kind of munge all those things together, then you get this, you know, pretty profound design opportunity. That is nerd sexy. That's what I call that. <laughs> That might be a shirt I should have. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, Amy and I talk to a lot of people who make objects that you can touch or see or buildings you can walk into, etc. So we really don't know a ton about digital design products. So it would be really great if you could give us a window into what your role is at Intuit and, and how you apply your previous you know, skill set to the design of these new products. There's a lot of similarities and there are some core differences. So I lead the small business design team, which is a group of about, eh, about 180 
global designers, three quarters or so of whom are right here in Mountain View. So the majority of our team is here. And then we have kind of small design outposts in our, in our six other global offices. You know, it's a, it's a motley crew of people. Some of the people that you directly think of, interaction designers, graphic designers, but also researchers, writers, prototypers. So a, a lot of the people who make ideas concrete, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the core things that digital design has in common with physical design is you're taking something that is potentially ephemeral and that we can kind of speak to and gesture about, and you're giving it like a thisness, even if that thisness is pixels. In terms of how I relate what I did as an architect to what I do now, you know, one of the big ways is the skill of being able to telescope and microscope simultaneously to really think at a big picture conceptual idea and then delve all the way into the details and the complexities of bringing it to life. You know, in architecture, that looks like navigating site constraints and mechanical, electrical and plumbing systems and figuring out how to operate within budget and how to structure a particular detail in tandem with an engineer, right? Like there's, there's immense kind of physical complexity and even regulatory complexity that exists. For us, it's not all that different. The infrastructure portions are, you know, the tech stacks that we work within. And that might be too insider lingo. And so please (laughs) ask me to unpack if any of it is. Before you go ahead, I I do want you to unpack tech stack. I don't, I don't, (laughs) I want to know what that means. Yeah, so kind of picture like, um, and probably anyone who's an engineer at our company will just like cringe that this is how I'd put it. But, you know, picture that there's like layers of a sandwich and the the part that I'm designing, uh, which is the overall kind of experience and user interface, the part you touch, it digs down into various dimensions of that of that layering and has to interact from, say, a, a data perspective with how the product is actually built infrastructurally. So there's different dimensions of that that are more necessary and not in certain things you want to do. You just want to like reskin it and change the colors. Well, I don't have to actually delve very far down. I want to build something that fundamentally changes how the data model operates. Well, now I have to actually dig all the way down into that infrastructure and, you know, and be looking at, you know, rerouting the pipes so to speak. And so the level of technology constraint and technology investment needed to build a feature that does something like that or to overhaul the interface model is immense on that side and and much lighter if all we're talking about is is reskinning. Okay. I had you at the sandwich and then I got a little lost. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to change how it interfaces with the data model... Um, that's yeah. akin to sort of redesigning the ingredients of the sandwich so that they're more nutritious or that they have a different feel on the tongue or that the whole thing. Yeah. I'm like, I like is... my sandwich metaphor, I think broke down, but I, <laughs> if I relate it back to architecture, actually, let's just, let's stick with the architecture as the metaphor that, that'll, that'll okay. work. Um, we're talking now, like you're, you're moving, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those moves where the contractor says, oh my gosh, like that's actually a support wall. Right. And so we're talking about fundamental restructuring. You're yes. going to need to reroute the electrical. You're going to need, need to change the way that the plumbing works. We're going to have versus, to take it down to the studs. Um, this is a gut job. Take it to the, yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Versus I got something you. where what you're really looking at is like uh, replacing the tile. 
Um, yes. And so we, we're dealing in the technology industry, change happens fast. And at Intuit, we've been able to adapt really pretty profoundly over the years. But you have with you some of the kind of, it's called legacy code. You know, if we're making the architecture comparison, it's moving into a hundred year old house, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to figure out how to rebuild and overhaul it while people are occupying it. Ah, very helpful. Thank you. That one we get. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you talked a lot about your research of the monetary instruments and you've talked about architecture and people still living in the hundred year old house. I'm wondering, you know, and you're a strong female trouncing the boys club up there in the (laughs) C-suite or something like that. Not quite there yet. Okay. Well, you're on your way. I guess my, my question is how much of your work looks and feels like cultural anthropology and in terms of designing products and corporate leadership and management, are you using the same models? Yeah. Let, let me rewind a little bit to, to your previous question. Cause I actually think these two bridge. Okay. You know, in terms of, of what I do and the role of design add into it in particular, um, that there's a pretty established process and it's, you know, part of our founder story, Scott Cook, we've branded it design for delight and it's a dimension of utilizing design thinking. So, you know, kind of taking my IDEO years with me and understanding the customer, really uh, understanding what it is that they truly need through observation, right? Like what is this core benefit I can provide or core pain I can solve and utilizing rapid prototyping, which is to propose a vast array of potential solutions and test them quickly, get them out quickly. They don't have to be perfect, understand which ones have potential and invest in, you know, further refining those things and scuttle the ones that don't. And then probably the part that's the most different from architecture as a practice is getting something built and in the hands of our customers and then listening very closely through the data that we can kind of hear and see which is how are they actually behaving? Is it doing what we thought it would? And how do we um, take what we see and cycle it into evolving it to be better? So that's the kind of core nucleus of what I do, what my team does in terms of designing experiences for our customers. If I take that to the question you just asked around like how much of what I do looks like cultural anthropology, that first portion, absolutely, right? Mm -hmm. in terms of understanding at a pretty deep level what it is that someone actually needs to um, not just, you know, kind of complete a utilitarian task. That that part's relatively easy. That doesn't probably require much of the anthropologist in any of us. But to understand, like, what's truly motivating them, what are psychological blockers, what are belief systems that they hold or attitudinal attributes, cultural attributes, that make one thing more or less desirable. Some of that is derived from direct observation and some of that is through reading, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of it processed in discussion with each other. So trying to use the fact that none of us are actually PhDs in cultural anthropology, but we've been kind of students of human behavior through our jobs and through our lives and saying that, um, you know, the kind of amalgamated process of what we can arrive at will will get us to a good result. I mean, that we do for our customers, and I'd fundamentally say that we do that as leaders in terms of how to influence and change an organization. I used to do it as a consultant on the outside, 
um, when I did my 10 years at IDEO, you can use some different methods when you're in the consulting space. Influence happens a little differently when you're actually one of, you're not just an influencer, but you're one of the influence. You can't distance yourself from the organization. Mm -hmm. But it's that same insight into human behavior and need and cultural memes and norms, utilizing techniques like prototyping to figure out what's actually something that's going to resonate in this space and, and be able to introduce change. And then you know, listening and evolving. So it's, it's really kind of applying that same design for delight, design thinking process to organizational change. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. 
I'll be leading the Emerging Designer Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called mouse parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So what are your particular strengths and weaknesses in doing that and applying that design thinking? Like in practice, what comes up against you that you still like need to fine-tune or strengthen? Yeah, I'm a good talker, and that helps in translating what it is that you uh, individually have seen or the something that can still be quite abstract in terms of, say, rationalizing a, a particular design choice. I've found that that ability to, you know, that architecture school kind of drilled into me with the critiques of being able to construct an argument of why has come in immensely handy. That's an area that I excel in. I have a love of the detail and I really notice it. There is like a a typographer's eye. And I think that gives me a deeper legitimacy with my own design community. and means I can set a pretty high bar for executional quality. And uh, I think in terms of where where I may fall short, it's often in um, impatience. It used to be in falling in love with my own solution. I'd say that if I rewind to 2005 when I started at IDEO, I would protect an idea and try to kind of wrap it in rationale. I'd use the power of kind of the strategic frame for evil, not good. And I've learned over the last uh, 10 to 12 years that getting it out, getting it into the eyes and ideally into the hands of potential customers is one of the best ways to defeat any personal preference and to realize that you never have it fully solved um, from the onset. It's, it's humbling, but again, it's, it's kind of, it's enabling at the same time. Do you ever just need to get hands on? I mean, you do a lot of abstract thinking and sometimes do you just need to garden or build something or yeah. renovate your own home. <laughs> I mean, do you need- totally, totally. Well, I, I, I'm like, you stole the words from my mouth. I am a huge gardener living in this climate makes that incredibly easy. And we lucked into buying a, a beautiful home that has, you know, a ton of raised beds. And so 
I both vegetable garden and then do a lot of um, both interior and exterior, just ornamental gardening, big cook, both with things I grow and not. And then on the artsy side, uh, my husband and I have a little uh, tabletop letterpress and we, we manage to still fit in, you know, doing some level of crafting. I like to craft though, you know, make, make a fair number of things for the kids, for holiday cards. He's also a designer by training and, and by practice. He's a design manager at Google, but we both kind of crave some of the physicality that comes from the, the kind of crafted arts and try pretty hard to fit that into our lives. I love that. (laughs) I love that too. And I'm glad that you have an outlet where you have something tangible, something where you can prove your hypotheses in an afternoon, you know? Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Get a real hardcore measurement of what you accomplished, you know, by how good it tastes when you're done cooking. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I do think that's one of the things that he and I talk about a lot. We met at architecture school in, in Princeton. And then obviously neither of us is practicing as an architect now, but the the primary thing that I think we feel we gave up not pursuing that as our profession is both the pride and almost the fear of permanence. You know, when you see that building come to life to realize like it's not a prototype or if it is one, it's Mm -hmm. a damn expensive prototype, but that there's this physicality to it that has, you know, impact on the environment, direct impact on its, you know, future inhabitants that it has impact on the urban fabric, like all all of these things that there's a gravitas and a permanence to it that I love the things I do, but digital products, you know, one of the things that makes them great is that you can actually change them very easily. And the inevitability that, you know, user preference, certainly while we're still in this kind of skyrocket mode of discovering, you know, conversational UI and really, really being mobile centered and everything that we do that, that user preferences change extremely quickly as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I do want to pivot a little bit and talk about something you and your husband made. Well, first of all, we YouTubed you because uh, (laughs) we do a lot of research on our guests before we talk to them. And we found a talk you did about your struggle with infertility, which ended up you know, resulting in a happy ending. Congratulations. Twins. Um, Thank you. mm -hmm. Twins. So (laughs) what I loved about what you did with that struggle was you pivoted it to something usable for a lot of people in business. It was like a lesson in helping companies innovate, uh, like fertility uh, being something that declines from startup with growth and age. So I would love for you to just talk a little bit about how you came to the realization of, of the idea of infertility being applied to innovation? Yeah, let's see here. So that period of my life, the years that I struggled to have our twins was really personally impactful for me. That sounds kind of pithy and like, of course it, it was, but you know, when I, when I look back, I I always call it like it's when I became human because prior to that, um, although I could intellectually empathize with suffering and with loss and with a failure, I hadn't actually experienced it myself. You know, I, I described my idyllic childhood and I was the salutatorian and the national merit scholar and the drum major and the all state player. I got into every school I ever applied to. I got every job I ever applied to. I never had a boyfriend break up with me. I, I was kind of, 
you're like, oh, you, you sort of suck. Like, and <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, I, I really hadn't dealt with hardship. And, and then suddenly, you know, and right on track, you know, I got married at 28. I was pregnant at 30, exactly as I'd planned. And I lost my first baby. And then I got pregnant again, lost the second, lost the third, lost the fourth, lost the fifth. And it was dumbfounding to me. Like, how could this possibly be true? And it was, you know, deeply depressing, really challenged my sense of self. It was really deeply frustrating. We couldn't get any answers from the medical community, found out that, you know, a large portion of people like myself who are multiple miscarriers, they have no idea why. And that it it was kind of the first time that I had to confront not being able to just solve something. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, awesome. We get to this amazing conclusion of that chapter and have our wonderful twins. And, you know, they're now precocious five-year-olds who are, you know, sometimes gallingly annoying, but mostly, you know, just magically delightful, (laughs) like like most children. And I, I came back to work and I realized how easy it would be for that to just be my new narrative that like, as if it hadn't happened that like, Hey, look, I have twins. And, you know, for people who hadn't met me, they might wonder if I did IVF, but you know, like they, they wouldn't kind of know the toil and the, the, the toil and the, the loss and the realization of lack of personal power had actually changed me. And I believe had changed me in much better ways into a better person. Like I was, I was primed to be a better parent, if nothing less. And I started to find that it was actually making me a better innovation consultant. And I wondered why, and if there was anything, you know, generalizable about that, that wasn't just kind of personal journey and change or something that I could actually extract. And as I looked at it, I realized that so much about being treated as an infertility patient and kind of having the balls to seek out moving on, to get pregnant again, to try it even though you'd failed, had so much direct analog to what a lot of our IDEO clients were doing in terms of seeking out help in becoming more innovative. And that there were a bunch of things because I'd sort of, you know, proverbially been on both sides of the gurney that I could bring to the table in terms of utilizing that story to be better at actually helping those clients and and getting them to successfully birth their babies. Yeah, this is a a really fascinating conversation. I personally have not struggled with infertility, but I've talked to many people who have. I have friends who, who deal with it and it is a struggle and, and not a lot of people talk about it. And, and I almost feel like if more people talked about it, it would be, I think, easier for people to understand like the physical and mental and emotional changes you go through as you have to deal with that, but also how it does change you because people who, who deal with loss or who deal with big life changes typically come out the other end, a different person and have a different perspective, but not everybody's ready to like talk about all that stuff that goes on in between that change. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting how taboo it is. I think it's changing a little, but not as fast as I would hope. And it's, it's amazing. You know, the, the stats are that a quarter of all women, any, any of any pregnancy ends in miscarriage. So, you know, I'm no statistician, but you do the math and you're like, there's a hell of a lot of people out there 
you know, couples too. I shouldn't just focus on, on the woman losing the pregnancy, but it is, you know, in that case, both an emotional loss and a physical loss. And, and it is just something that culturally, even in, you know, the liberal, tolerant and supportive Bay Area, it isn't something that we widely talk about. And when I initially shared my infertility story, and I got pretty open um, over the years as the, as the pregnancy losses piled up, I got more and more open about talking about it. And it just would end up opening this floodgate of people coming to me with, with their personal tales or asking if they could connect a friend to me and just realizing that, you know, that it's, it's an amplifier on the negativity of the experience, how much I I believe that we hold it in private. I agree. Like it's something to be embarrassed of. Yeah. Or something that you should tiptoe around because you wouldn't want to stir up someone's emotions. And it's true that you can't just barrage questions on somebody without regard for how it might stir stuff within them if they're at the grocery store Mm -hmm. or trying to get a project done. Like there is some social finesse that needs to happen. But the taboo part of it is what keeps us from, I think, really putting all of our heads together and working towards socially a more, I guess, compassionate way of, of dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm probably an oversharer in general, and that's definitely not everyone's proclivity, but I've always felt that that just creates, you know, some level of glide path to us all embracing our shared humanity, you know, surviving, surviving this all together, you know. Absolutely. Well, what I loved about your YouTube talk, too, is the way you sort of overlaid your experience with the problems that a mature established company might have with innovation. And in doing so, you know, you you kind of highlighted for us how you reconciled with your situation and turned it from something that was deeply impactful into also something that could resonate on a positive level outwardly and something that you could use um, a natural model for how to apply change to something that's man-made. And that is the definition of making lemonade out of lemons, I think. (laughs) Something my mom is extremely good at. (laughs) (laughs) So females to female, Amy and I are, I would say we are feminists and we promote women in design and architecture and and also STEM and all of those other things. But I'm wondering from your perspective, what can we do in this generation to continue paving that way for women in business? And specifically, how can we use design thinking to maybe solve something like the gender wage gap problem? Yeah, great, great question. I have definitely, you know, I feel like since having a daughter, I've thought about this more overtly. Um, And then, of course, in the last few months where I may have presumed we were finally as the U.S. going to have a um, woman in the highest seat of office and, and that didn't come true, how much I have felt and in discussions with my girlfriends who are you know, kind of equally privileged to have a seat at the table, how much we're feeling it's on our shoulders and should be to make it easier and better to make sure that, you know, we don't pull the ladder up behind us, so to speak, but that we're making it that much easier for, you know, women. And and, and really, I use women as like a a proxy for diverse voices. We're, We're really that like indicator in a way of how much you're allowed to be not the same, both visually and often stylistically, um, and still have impact and thrive. So, I mean, in terms of utilizing design thinking, 
it, that it's it's really that initial um, core human empathy um, because I think very few people I'm not going to go with no one but very few people desire to be not tolerant not diverse if you poll folks the the general sentiment that comes back as one that 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 they think they are and are are pretty unaware of unconscious bias and that if if they aren't already that they desire to be and so I think at this moment in time, design thinking has an immense opportunity to kind of connect that latent desire or even, you know, directly expressed desire, understand why in many cases it's not happening. What are those cultural norms? What are those organizational norms that are blockers? What are the deeply embedded um, beliefs that people have that either stymie their own personal ambition or have it so that they feel that they just like that person that's more like them. And so I think the more that we understand what underpins those things and then can essentially design systems that run counter and evolve norms over time, I do think it takes some time, I I believe we'll get there. That was very optimistic. I believe we'll get there now too. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, and I really do appreciate that you and your, your peer, your female peers in technology and you know, who do, like you said, have a seat at the table that you really are promoting diversity. That's incredibly important that you recognize that what you have and that there are others that may not have that and you're striving to make things, things better. So thank you for doing that. I'm sure you've had a little of this yourselves, or I hope you have that, you know, the kind of community that has surfaced in the last few months and that just the, the volume of, of passion. And I, I kind of mean both volume in terms of size and in terms of, um, you know, the, the actual voice, yeah. the loudness that has given me a lot of optimism. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I was super optimistic and I'm not every <laughs> moment of the day a few months ago, but just like I took my kids to a gathering locally and it was so energizing and they were supported and us being a family together that, you know, it was, it was just pretty heartening to see the the level of passion and the commitment from people who are not all women to making sure that women's voices are heard. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had the same experience and I do feel that there is a galvanization and an organization that's happening that I'm incredibly encouraged by. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, where does Leslie Witt go from here? I understand you're probably not planning on moving careers, but in terms yeah. of you evolving as a human, becoming fully self-actualized, what does that look like? And what's the next step on your path? What does the end goal look like? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think <laughs> one thing that, that, that I will do from here uh, is it really, uh, you know, when I look at this, this kind of next set of years in front of me, if I, I, I look back and my life seems like it's happened in these 10 year chapters, and I'm definitely hoping that where I'm added into it, you know, I'm kind of two years in that this has its own 10 year chapter to run because the purpose of the company to really help people and businesses thrive is one I, I feel deeply personally identified with. And in particular, just the level of struggle that small businesses and self-employed have to make a go of things. I, I think we have a ton that we can do for and with them. And I've 
I love being on this bus. So, you know, I look at this kind of next chapter and I see a lot of runway to have deeper impact through and with into it. But after that, because I'm sure there will be a next chapter, um, I've actually, you know, kind of apropos to what we were just talking about, started to kind of flirt around with seeing myself in the public sector. Mm. And that doesn't, you know, necessarily have to mean running for office. But I think there's something to be said for taking both this kind of the optimism and human insight of design as a world approach, as well as the concreteness of exploration and creativity to a a space as intractable and as broken as the public sector and trying to, to drive change in that way. Yes. Yes. That's what you shall do. I have we're proclaimed on, it. We're on team, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> this was my formal public declaration. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have loved talking to you. We would love to plug you and everything that you do. So do you want to tell us a little bit about any particular projects you're currently working on that you might want our listeners to know about? Yes, I do. In fact, so one of the areas that we've really invested a lot in over the, the last few years is in coming up with financial tools to serve the needs of the self-employed. So, you know, you think, I would imagine there's a fair amount of this listener base, especially if they're folks like myself that trained in architecture and design who are themselves self-employed and realize how hard it is to kind of manage finances around that, um, you know, the emerging freelancer economy. Amen. Um, Ubers, so all, <laughs> those, all those Uber drivers, you know, they have, we have to figure out how to actually get them supported. Turns out that the U.S. actually considers you to essentially be a small business. And a lot of folks who operate in that space are caught completely unawares when it comes to the economics of taxes and, and beyond. And so um, Intuit, you know, I, I, I'm on the small business side, but Intuit also authors TurboTax, which a lot of people use to do their taxes. And this year we've come up with a joint offering for self-employed. So TurboTax self-employed and QuickBooks self-employed as, as a package deal to really utilize artificial intelligence and all sorts of amazing technological wizardry to make it easier for people to save a a ton of money and get to confidence that they're, they're, you know, kind of got their check mark on doing it right. And where can our listeners find you or your professional persona on the web and on social media? How can we follow your work? Sure. Well, feel free to find me on LinkedIn and occasionally you will find me uh, on Twitter at moneywit. Well, thank you. This has been really enlightening and very optimistic and delightful. (laughs) So good to chat with you guys. I really appreciate it. That is one nerd sexy woman. I like her. I like her so much, but I feel pretty dumb because she's so smart. (laughs) Dude. Her command of the language was just amazing. Unbelievable. I know. The way she strings. So I was really happy when I asked her about her strengths and weaknesses that she said, well, I'm a good talker because I was like, hell yeah, you are. <laughs> hmm. And I love that she like framed her weakness in like the, the most positive and optimistic way possible. I don't even remember what it was. Oh, she used to fall in love with her ideas. She likes to be proven wrong, which is like a super nerdy, but super cool. Yeah. <laughs> But it's also an important evolutionary milestone as a designer, because ultimately you really want to test your ideas for where they fail. That's Mm -hmm. how you know where they don't work and how you can make them better. And if you protect your ideas, 
wrap them in all these defensive arguments and don't let them actually find their fracture points, then you're not doing a service to anyone. And so that's kind of a hard lesson to learn. I like that she pointed that out and she shared yeah, that with us. And I think if you're designing something for a lot of people to be using, ultimately, even if you have the best idea, if you test it out and you're proven wrong, you know, you have to have the strength to let go of that idea and move on to the one that people are, you know, pushing you toward. Yeah, there's nothing more depressing than working your whole life for an idea that ultimately um, can't become viable before it's obsolete or ultimately just isn't that workable. You know what I mean? She sounds really courageous to me. And I liked that she was so candid about having all of this privilege during her youth. You know, even moving around a lot could have been traumatic for someone, but she didn't describe it that way at all. And somehow the universe had to help her be human. (laughs) Right. And that's the way she looked at it. I mean, I'm sure when she was going through it, there were times when she felt really beat up by the sky, but not this guy, the sky. (laughs) When she felt, you know, beat up by her circumstances, but she ultimately found a way to make it into something that ultimately made her stronger but also turn that experience into a a template or a framework for making other things stronger, which is excellent. Yes. And then she is sharing all of that personal knowledge and discovery and her personal change and how it affects her overall view of what she does and imparting that knowledge on people through, you know, having these conversations. Man, maybe the answer to everything is a, Liz Claiborne short suit with shoulder pads and frosted lipstick (laughs) and frosted lipstick. And we could put all our 13 year olds in that outfit. (laughs) Maybe they grow up to be like her. I don't know. She's pretty great, though. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Leslie's work, her family and twins and that YouTube video we talked about during the show. You can connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We always love hearing from you. And if you would like to help support Clever in another way, we've got some suggestions. You could forward our newsletter to someone who might be interested. You can leave us a review on iTunes, retweet or repost your favorite quote from Clever. You can go to cleverpodcast.com and make a donation, or you could just support our sponsors. Check out all the cool stuff our advertisers are doing. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modell of Your Studio with music by L1011. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.